Hello, and welcome to In the Kitchen with Brett Thorne, a restaurant industry podcast by The Last Bite Network, a product of Nations Restaurant News and Restaurant Hospitality. I'm your host, Senior Food and Beverage Editor, Brett Thorne. My guest for this episode is cocktail legend Jim Meehan, the former head drink guy at Please Don't Tell, better known as PDT, here in New York City. He's also the author of the PDT Cocktail Book. Now he's the bar director at Takibi, a Japanese-inspired restaurant in Portland, Oregon, owned by Snowpeak, a lifestyle brand headquartered in Niigata, Japan. PDT was one of the first so-called modern speakeasies, places that were low-key on the outside but super cool on the inside with expertly made drinks. To get into PDT, you had to go to a little hot dog shop called Criff Dogs and walk into their phone booth. You had to pick up the receiver of the phone and wait for someone to answer. Then you could either ask if they had space for you or confirm the reservation that you'd already made. And if they wanted to let you in, one of the walls of the phone booth would open and behind would be this cool, dark, hidden space with delicious cocktails. Mian isn't involved in PDT anymore but it's still up and running in case you want to go the next time you're in New York City's East Village. I think the last time I was there, years ago, I had drinks with Holly Arnold, who is the owner of The Fort, which is a landmark restaurant in the Denver suburb of Morrison, Colorado. It's a place where you can go and get things like Elk Chateaubriand, that that sort of thing. Or you could. I don't know. I don't know what the menu's like anymore. Uh... Holly and I had never met before we were drinking in PDT, but but we did have a shared history. As you might know, because I mention it a lot, I grew up in Denver. My father, who worked for their local public television station, KRMA-TV Channel 6, actually did a documentary about Arnold's father, Sam Arnold, who founded the fort. So Holly and I bonded over that. Uh, But over the course of our conversation, we also discovered that she had been to the house I grew up in before my family moved there. At the time, the house was an ashram for a little short-lived religion called the Divine Light Mission. Holly was a member and used to meditate in my house. I love that house, she told me, which is nice because I love it too. I'd say it's a small world, but I, I don't really believe that. The world's big. It's all we have but we do tend to operate in fairly narrow circles. Anyway, it's funny and and pretty counterintuitive that Jim Meehan was one of the guys behind PDT since it was so exclusive and, and came across as kind of pompous, which Jim is definitely not. He's one of the sweetest, most gracious guys I've ever met. In fact, I'm pretty sure he's the guy who got me into PDT so I could have drinks with Holly Arnold and her publicist. Over the course of our conversation, uh, Mian said that calling PDT and the other bars of that nature speakeasies, or modern modern speakeasies, is really incorrect. These secret but not really secret cocktail bars, which continue to open across the country, actually have their origins elsewhere. But I'll let Jim Mian explain that. Here he is. Jim, it's so nice to see you. <laughs> exactly. How have you been? You know, it's been a, it's been a long couple of years. Yes. Uh, I think you moved to Portland when? 2014, something like that? Yeah. Yeah. So August of 2014 was when I moved. 
and then if I looked at the at the uh, information correctly, you were about to open uh, Takibi right before the pandemic started. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, we were we were going to launch it, and then the fateful decision was made on Snow Peak's behalf to sort of delay it until you know the a uh, 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 it seemed like the right time to open. And when was that? When did you guys finally open? Uh, we opened in May of last year. So we're almost approaching our one year anniversary being fully open. And you are, I hope I don't make you blush, blush, you're a legendary mixologist who uh, founded uh, PDT among many other things. Um, you know, I, I guess before uh, asking about Takibi, I, I, I don't think I ever heard the story of Please Don't Tell and how you figured out how to open a speakeasy in like next to a hot dog stand with a phone booth that like which because that was new then the whole speakeasy thing and so i think that one of the things that it's funny i got asked this um years ago when i was in chicago for the pre-opening of prairie school and uh one of the things they sort of have to confess in some of these um interviews is that as a non-wealthy person who doesn't have like VC funds to to open up and and start my ventures. A lot of my ventures don't start with what would I do with a with a blank slate. They start with what are what are the opportunities that are available to me. So with with PDT, the um, the origin story of PD my involvement in PDT was that I was um, at in two thousand. Six. I was bartending at the Pegu Club uh, once a week, and then Gramercy Tavern four nights a week. And my my battery mate at the Pegu Club was Sinjin Frizzell, whose full time job was working at the Good Fork in Red Hook. And Sinjin was serving um, guests one night who were talking about me, and he mentioned that he worked with me at the Pegu Club. And and one of those the people that was sort of talking about me was one of the original regulars of, of the restaurants at Five Points, which I started working uh, at in 2002. Um, so Chris Antista came and found me at the Pegu Club, thanks to Sinjin, and told me about a project he was working with with his, his high school buddy, um, Brian Shibero, who owned who he opened Criff Dogs with in 2002. Um, and effectively, in maybe in 2001. And so they brought me in as a consultant to initially as a consultant to help them figure out how to like basically create a cocktail bar out of the space that they were designing in a former bubble tea lounge that was sitting in the same space as PD as Crift Dogs, uh, 113 St. Mark's. Um, and then eventually Brian and Chris um, Chris left the project and then I was brought in, you know, Brian offered me partnership and then he and I ran it together for a number of years. And so the, the, the phone booth and the, that whole concept was a, I have to give Brian and Chris credit for all of that. I, I was mainly focused on, um, trying to make sure the little bar that they put back there could, could, you could launch a cocktail program from there. And then I did the you know, I hired the staff and and created the menu and and sort of worked with Brian, who'd never owned a bar, on on sort of like bar operation stuff. 
Well, and Criff Dogs is the, I think still exists, is the uh, hot dog stand restaurant. Little yeah, so, so Brian sold the bit, both businesses to Jeff Bell, who is now running them, uh, I think, with a different ownership group right now. So the, the, the show goes on. Amazing. Um, yeah, and that sort of got the whole fake speakeasy thing going. Because, and you know, at first, those speakeasies just kind of pissed me off because I was like, you know, alcohol is legal now. Like, why, why all of this fakery? But then every time I went to one, they were really cool. The cocktails were delicious, and it was they were they're fun places to hang out. You know what's interesting? I've also it's been long enough for I've had time to like think about this. The we all got it wrong, including myself. Um, I was initially reticent to call it a speakeasy. If you will, if you will look back, there's I was the one who coined the term modern speakeasy because I was uh, palpably uncomfortable with the the notion of these places being called speakeasies because they they bore little resemblance to the speakeasies that I read about during Prohibition in New York, which were these sort of they were these sort of, I mean, the, the the prototypical modern speakeasy was milk and honey and and milk and honey was like a chapel, you know, it was like a hushed, um, a hushed uh, Zen uh, chapel for cocktails. It was not like the sort of like body fun um, sort of space that you read about in like about the New York prohibitionary speakeasy. And so I knew that we, I kind of instinctually knew there was something wrong with it. And then I, but I had so many people coming to me who wanted to talk about my bar and I didn't have a, a sign out front and I was not shy, as you know, you know me well about the media. So I took the interview, but I sort of pivoted with like, well, it's a modern speakeasy. But what I've realized in retrospect is that Sasha was inspired by Angel Share, which is sadly, I believe, closing this month. And the truth of the matter is, is I think that these these bars were not speakeasies. They were actually Japanese. Is it like sort of Ginza style businessman bars? And if you re kind of cast this to the way that you would enter a cocktail bar in, in the Ginza district of, of Tokyo or in, in a lot of parts of Tokyo, a lot of the top cocktail bars in Tokyo are located in second or third story office you know, spaces that have no signage. And you have to know to go to a certain building and to go to a certain elevator and then to find the space. And so I think that in reality, we've actually sort of concepted these things we've conceptualized them incorrectly and i think if we look at them as more american versions of japanese sort of uh cocktail bars i think that that it all makes a little more sense and in, in case any of the audience doesn't know the sasha you're referring to is the late great sasha Petrasky, who opened milk and honey and angel share was i guess still is for another month a beautiful reservations only second story cocktail bar that, that you couldn't stand. You had to have a reservation, you had to sit, and you had to be uh, civilized. And, uh, and it's located in an izakaya that is, and it's located in a, not an unmarked door, but you have to know that it's there and it's on the second floor. So right. I forgot about in, that. In some ways, 
I feel like Angel's share was the, uh, you know, uh, the more I've thought about it, Angel's share really is the origin story of this. And Milk and Honey was the one that sort of was the tipping point or was the Americanization of Angel's share. And PDT was the sort of almost like the, a parody of it in the sense that it, you know, it took it to the like American next level of like, a phone booth, you know, it was, um, but I think that, that, that if we recast this, it makes more sense. That's an awesome point. And I actually was in Japan with uh, bartender slash mixologist Naren Young. We went on a very strange trip to a, a sake festival in Niigata, but he already had this list of bars that we had to check out wherever we went. And indeed, we went to the first bar and we had to tell them that we wanted to go to this other bar so they could walk us there because there's no way we'd find it otherwise. Yeah. And all of the- Nikata is where Snow Peak is, uh, is located, the business that I'm currently uh, associated with. So I've been to Japan seven times, but I've never been to Niigata. So I'm excited. I'm excited you got to go there. It was awesome. And, and the food everywhere in Japan is insane. And the sake- in Niigata is this austere, crisp, beautiful, lovely kind of sake for the most part. Um, so fun. And we ate, you know, everything. And it was all delicious. Um, I had live shrimp, you know, all of that sort of kitschy touristy stuff, really. As, as the Japanese are like, really? You did that? You had the live shrimp? Um, it wasn't my choice. They gave it to me. Um, so that's such a beautiful segue that we have to talk about what you're doing now with Snow Peak, Japanese company, and Takibi, this uh, restaurant in um, Portland that yeah. I don't know much about, except that uh, they have a new chef and you're their cocktail guy. So let's let's tell everyone about it. Yeah. So going back to what I was sort of confessing about my uh, lack of massive VC funds to fund all of my initiatives. I've, I've lived in Portland since 2014. I arrived here um, after an exciting nearly 20 years in the hospitality industry. And, and when I arrived, I was still uh, involved at PDT. And then we'd actually were working on a PDT Hong Kong. And I was still working with American Express and the Centurion lounges. And I had just sold a book deal and I had a lot of writing to do. So for the first few years in Portland, I didn't, I had a lot on my plate and I, and I didn't, um, I wasn't looking for a, an opportunity here and one wasn't looking for me either. And so it was a sort of quiet, um, it was a quiet entry. And, and, and my wife and I actually also like had left New York um, with a, a one and a half year old. And, and then, you know, a couple, a few years later, we, we welcomed, uh, a second child. So we've been busy. Like we've, it's not like we, it wasn't, it wasn't quiet, but, but after uh, five or six years, you know, the book was out, we'd had our second kid, like things were really kind of stable. And, and I was, um, I was approached by a friend who I met in New York who used to cook in, um, he cooked at Momofuku noodle bar and he worked with Dan Barber and he worked at Franny's in Brooklyn. Um, and he'd opened a couple of restaurants here and he had been approached by Snow Peak to help them concept and design a restaurant in their new flagship 
uh, location of a, of a store here in Portland. So, so Snow Peak is a third generation Japanese outdoor lifestyle brand that it, you know, was founded um, nearly 70 years ago by the first founder who was, um, he was in Niigata, which is not only famous for its sake, but famous for its metalworks. And so he was interested in mountain climbing, but there was no way to get his hands on sort of crampons or axes or, or the sort of equipment you'd need to, to scale a mountain. So he started working with the uh, metal workers of, of Niigata to, to start fashioning sort of mountain climbing equipment. And his son, Toru, um, basically grew up with the, with the company and came to, to America, I think in the 60s and 70s and, and, and sort of like traveled around the country in a van and camped and then came home to Japan and told his dad that like he fell in love with this idea of van camping and really wanted to like sort of think about like expanding the company into this idea of camping and like camping from a van and traveling around. And so that is what the sort of uh, second generation Yamai uh, uh, sort of founder or owner of Snow Peak worked on. And then Lisa is his daughter who will, will take his place. And she's um, kind of steeped in apparel and fashion and, and sort of, you know, really what what Snow Peak looks like from a in a wearable sense. And, and, and so it's been, I moved to Portland and they had a, a little store in the, in the Pearl where I had an apartment and I used to walk the dog and go over and sort of like, you know, gaze at this kind of very expensive titanium drinkware that was mostly for sake and tea. And then sort of ogle it at Lisa's like beautiful, like sort of like modern um, sort of outdoor wear. And then like really sort of, love this stuff. And then my friend Joshua McFadden told me about this project. And I was like, how amazing would it be to have the opportunity to, to, to do this? So we spent um, about a year in the concept and build out stage where I got to like design and, and, and help really sort of configure the restaurant where workstations and, and uh, everything behind the bar will be. And then as, as we just mentioned the top of the hour, um, we, you know, we're about to open right around the pandemic and then we sort of delayed it. So we delayed it until a year ago and then opened. And it's just been a, um, it's been great. You know, I mean, I, the pandemic has obviously been a hugely uh, complicating factor, uh, but, I, but I feel, you know, after leaving PDT in 2014 and really pulling myself out of service closer to 2009 and 10, it's been a decade since I've been on the floor, you know, really in action. And while it's, it's, um, I'm not, I'm no spring chicken anymore. It's really nice to be back in service, back in the restaurant and trying to shed my legend status and try to contribute in 2021 and 2022. So how, how, let's talk about the cocktail program because the, the way it's described by your media people is that it's sort of Japanese inspired, but part of that inspiration is using awesome, fresh, local seasonal stuff, which is, of course, what the Pacific Northwest is all about anyway. So talk about that, please. Yeah, so, I mean, I get offered various things. You um, used, used to be every day. Now it's less frequently. But one of the first things I asked myself when an opportunity 
comes up regardless of, you know, what field it's in is, am I qualified to do this? And um, am I the right person for this opportunity? I feel like when you have more opportunities than you can actually act upon, those are important questions. Um, and, and it's also important because there's a good chance that I know someone who would be better suited for it and I could recommend it to them. So I, I consider one of my primary roles as a, as a leader in this industry is to like both, you know, I, I, I don't think I should eat any more than I need. You know what I mean? Like, so I feel like I need to like look at opportunities and, and be honest with myself about whether I'm capable and the right person for it. And then if I'm not trying to find the right opportunity for someone else. So I do that with every opportunity. And with this opportunity, one of the big questions I had to ask myself once I got involved was, you know, in working for a Japanese company in Portland, Oregon, what would the beverage program need to look like knowing that they had hired the original chef was a was cooking in Kyoto and, and was was putting together a very classic Japanese menu. And so, you know, one of the things I, I think a lot about nowadays is, is cultural appropriation and and whose whose food I'm cooking or, or what I'm preparing and and making sure that I'm I'm giving proper credit and, and also making sure that I'm not appropriating someone else's culture, you know, for my own benefit or incorrectly. And so with it, with this program, it was, as I thought about it, it was interesting. If you travel to Japan, a lot of the cocktail bars that you go to feature classic American and Western cocktails. And they, they not exclusively, but the Western cocktail making uh, tradition is, is fully ensconced in the Japanese cocktail making tradition. So in this sense, I sort of felt um, good in the sense that I, I know I could work within my own sort of cocktail sort of uh, lexicon, knowing that I would be working within the same lexicon that Japanese bartenders would. And then in thinking about the broader beverage program, there's a there's an emerging Japanese wine culture, but it is sort of really sort of small and and it's tough to get uh, a representative sample of that over here. And then as I thought about the rest of the program, um, Japan obviously has a longstanding and excellent tea tradition, and Niigata is is one of the premier regions of Japan for sake production. So what I've done is I hired one of the top um, young uh, Portland bartenders and bar managers, Lydia McLuhan, to be the bar manager to sort of be my sort of partner in, in everything we do. And together, we've put together a beverage program that features uh, all sakes from Japan with, with Niigata being the feature, all teas from Japan. Uh, and then we've uh, put together a list that has all local uh, Portland beers and then wines throughout the Pacific Northwest and, and occasionally we've sourced a little bit from Northern California and Washington. And then a cocktail menu that it, it basically centers and features ingredients from the Pacific Northwest and uses ingredients from Japan as an accent. So the, and, and all of my drinks historically have been based on classic cocktails. So they're kind of classic cocktails would, would, would be the inspiration for uh, drinks that have ingredients that are principally from the Pacific Northwest that always use a Japanese ingredient to complement it. So it sort of tells the story of um, 
of Tahiti and 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 Snow Peak in in Oregon. And and I think that as I was thinking more about this opportunity and my travels to Japan, I realized that most of my visits to Japanese, you know, the various cities I visited, there was always a great deal of pride of what was local in those restaurants. And I thought like, if I was a Japanese uh, person opening a restaurant in Portland, I would, if I, if I was thinking like a Japanese chef or like a Japanese bartender, I would be featuring local ingredients. So I thought that the, in the absence of being Japanese, the, the way to honor Japanese uh, values and, and sort of practices would be to, to be local because I found that that was what I found prevalent throughout all of my uh, dining and drinking experiences in Japan. And it also uh, honors Portland values as does being super conscious about cultural appropriation since Portland is like the capital of being super <laughs> conscious about cultural appropriation. So, so it all fits so well. Um, yeah, that was the goal is to sort of make sure I was being respectful. That was like the first and foremost thing is like, um, that was important to me. Yeah, totally. So talk about some of the cocktails that you are psyched about, if you could. Yeah, so I think a great example of uh, what we're doing is I have a uh, shandy on the menu that is uh, a mixture of Japanese uh, yuzu soda from a company called Kamino with a, a, a local brewery called Ferment that's based in the Hood River. They created a, a Japanese style Pilsner using rice um, and, and they have sort of canned it exclusively and kegged it exclusively for us. So this drink is a combination of this Japanese yuzu soda with this local Oregonian beer that's brewed in the style of Japanese lagers and pilsners that we're combining and uh, serving with a, a togarashi salt rim. So I think it, that that is, that is a great example of Oregon and Japan uh, and and sort of a refreshing classic style drink that is food friendly and uh, you know kind of falls into the like low ABV quaffable sort of like set of drinks. So I feel like that is like a, a one example of the many drinks we're doing. There's a there's a drink that our new bartender, Justin Brody just created called the Warbler. It is a variation on the Jungle Bird. So he used the Warbler. He was thinking of the Japanese Warbler, which is a, I guess, whose bird song is synonymous with spring in Japan. And this drink is uh, Roku, uh, Centauri Roku gin that's been infused with local forage cherry blossoms with um, Campari and lime juice and Orjat, uh, which we're sourcing from my friend Sean Hord's commissary uh, with a little Banks 5 rum, and that's served uh, over pebble ice with a lime and a cherry. So that's another example of like, take, you know, local ingredients and, and a sort of you know, a, a classic formula like the jungle bird and try to create something that's seasonal and timely uh, and speaks to the confluence of like Japan and, and Oregon together in a glass. And, and I think that, you know, we're Oregon in particular and Portland is, is filled with fruit, you know, with cherry blossoms right now. And I think that the sort of cherry blossom season in Japan is a really important cultural moment for them. So I think that there are lots of interesting um, commonalities between the what is what is growing and going on in Japan and what's growing and going on here in Portland. 
Yeah, and you're definitely not screwing around. I mean, there's there's a lot of thought going into all of this stuff, which is to be expected and also awesome. Yeah, I think one of the things I try to tell my staff and like one of the things I'm trying, the culture I'm trying to put in place is that, you know, the drinks need to be delicious, you know, because because like we're in Portland and there's lots of great places to get great drinks. Like we're, we're not, I've always said, we're, we're not going to make better drinks than the best bars in Portland or, or for that matter, anywhere else in the country. So the goal isn't to like out, class people in our drinks the goal is for our drinks to tell a story and our story and I think that that is where I think that I learned at PDT was that you know there's an early process when you open where a lot of what you're trying to do is figure out where you sit vis-a-vis all these other bars that you want to be in the conversation with and the sooner you can get past that point of like paying attention to what everyone else is doing and understand what you do and what you do well and what you want to do. And then continuing to like focus on doing that better. Um, I think that is the goal. And I think having learned that lesson in New York, um, I've fast tracked that process here in Oregon so that we're, you know, a year later looking forward to, there were certain drinks that were very successful last year that we're going to bring back this year because we want people who joined us last year to have that sense of kind of coming home and, and trying something they loved last year. So there's a, a local wine producer who makes a sparkling rosé um, that, that, that he's canned. And last year we had a very limited amount of it because we bought it at the end of the, its availability. And to be honest, like while this winemaker knew Lydia, he didn't really know what we'd be doing with it. And, you know, we, we sort of had no credibility. And then now fast track a year later, he's a regular guest of our restaurant. He's, he's allocated 10 cases for us. He's, his wife loves the drink, you know, so it's sort of, this drink has, um, it's the rosé with a local uh, distiller named Stone Barnes. It's, they have a, a Nochino that we love that they make with wild forged uh, black walnuts that has uh, Aperol that we infuse with strawberries and that we garnish with a, um, a pickled wacamomo Japanese peach that looks like an olive. So it looks like an Aperol spritz, but it's a peach instead of an olive and it's strawberry infused Aperol instead of Aperol and it's local rosé instead of Prosecco. And, it, and, it's, and it's kind of embittered with a little loco nochino and we call it the patio season. And we'll launch that once the patio opens up after we take our garish sort of covering off of it. Um, so I think that like those are the sort of exciting parts about like being one year in is welcoming back this drink that was a, a limited run sort of hit last year that we can bring back um, to sort of start building tradition. Yeah, that makes sense. And it also sounds like an awesome drink, which, as you said, you have to have delicious. Yeah, and it, it's it's an ephemeral awesome drink. Like, I think that, you know, there are certain drinks we've kept on the menu all year because they don't have seasonal ingredients. And then there are other drinks like this one where the rosé is a limiting factor. Strawberries are a limiting factor. These peaches are hard to get your hands on. So, um as fun as it is to have these sort of building block drinks like like the Benton's old fashioned 
has been at PDT, it's also fun to have these ephemeral drinks that we can bring back and then take off. Totally. Uh, Jim, how did you get interested in making cocktails in the first place? However long ago that was. You know, it's a good question. I, it's the story that I tell. And once again, I don't know if this is the true story. Um, I, I started bartending in 1995 in Madison, Wisconsin at a, at a tavern called State Street Brats, which is still there. It had been open since the 1950s. And it was sort of in the time where like, we were still at a time where like the Tom Cruise cocktail movie was the sort of apotheosis of like what bartending could be or, or should be. And while I don't think like Tom Cruise was a particularly, I wouldn't say he was uninfluential, but I wouldn't say that like I ever saw myself as a Tom Cruise like figure, but I always did really like mixing the drinks and I always took particular pride in mixing them well. I don't think though that that has anything to do with any specific interest in drinks, but I think it has to do with a specific desire to do what I do well, regardless of what that is. So I think that like I am a um, perf- I mean, perfectionist is maybe the wrong word, but I remember as a kid seeing the movie, this is a funny one, which you probably didn't have on your bingo card for this interview, but <laughs> I remember as a kid seeing the movie UHF, which was um, a movie about a janitor at a radio station where the, the lead character was Weird Al Yankovic. And I don't, I haven't watched this movie. I probably only watched it once, but it had a very sort of outsized influence on my mind where the moral of this movie was that like the janitor of the radio station could be the protagonist of the, and hero of the whole story. And I think the lasting impression it made on me is just that heroes and and protagonists come from all sort of like walks of life and all positions and and that we need not only look to you know the people that were conditioned or our society sort of you know puts on a pedestal for anything from bravery or heroism just to like just simple you know important acts and so i i i believe very fundamentally in the dignity of all work. And, and I think that the work that I sort of fell into in college that I really began to enjoy was working in bars and restaurants. And so I figured I might as well get good at this because this is what I'm gonna do for my life. And I approach drink making with the same, like I, what I've mostly done for the last year at Takibi is bus tables. And it's funny. I remember like when I, when we opened, like I hadn't held the tray in a long time and I was a little, you know, like I wasn't really comfortable holding the tray. And now, you know, a year later, like I hold, I hold the tray every night. So I, I think that, and I'm always thinking about how to hold it more elegantly or how to hold it more, you know, how to, I, I, I bust six and eight tops and I like sitting there like trying to Tetris everything in the right place. So, and try to do it elegantly. Like I bust tables with the same conviction that I make Manhattans. To me, it's, it's the same thing. It's work and, and it's, and it's valuable. Right. No matter what the work is, you should do it the best that you can. Yeah. And like, and enjoy it and, and like take pride in it. And I'm, and I'm, 
I'm proud of bussing tables at Takibi. Like I, and I enjoy it. Like, and I, I'm trying to get better at it too. Like, and I think that that is a, um, that is a sort of thing that is wired into me that I hope will always stay wired into me. I think that being interested in your work and finding your work interesting is something that for those of us who do the same job our whole lives, it can be hard to do. It can be hard to find the motivation to get up and do the same thing you've been doing for a long time. And the exciting thing I think about working in bars and restaurants is that there's always like a new, there's always something coming up that's like, oh, I didn't see this one coming, you know, where you're like, there's an opportunity to learn and there's an opportunity to then learn from what ha- what you did and to try to get better. And I think for me, I I continue to make mistakes and I continue to try to learn from them. And I continue to try to put myself in positions to grow and, and do things that I haven't done and then try to do them better. What, what a nice philosophy. So you're having fun. And, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as to say I'm having fun. I think that the, I'm in, I feel a great sense of, um, relief that I'm doing it again and that I'm able to do it. Um, I don't take my physical, mental, or emotional health for granted. (laughs) Uh, but I think that, I think I'll have fun once this pandemic comes to some semblance of stability. And once, you know, like we, a year ago, in addition to the pandemic, the building owner uh, decided to like re- basically to cover our building and scaffolding and, and recover, like basically it's called reskinning the entire building. So our gorgeous multi-million dollar store and restaurant have been covered in scaffolding for a year. So that comes off, I think at the end of the month, at the end of April. So I feel like this spring with the scaffolding gone and with hopefully the pandemic in a stable place, I'm hoping that we can, you know, find our footing and, and, and get in the black. You know, I, fi- I feel like to date, a lot of our existence has, has come from Snow Peaks willingness to, you know, delay our opening so that we could open, you know, in person and then supporting us as we've tried to find our, our footing through these tough times. So, I mean, I think I'll have fun when, when I can sit home and, and look at the numbers and be like, You know, I I think like PDT really became fun when I, you know, I worked there for a number of years. And then to be honest, it became fun when I didn't have to be there for it to be great. You know, I think that when you have to be there every day or as much as I've been there this last year for it to work, that is, it feels good for you because you're doing something but I've yet to kind of create something for Snow Peak or for my coworkers that works for them too. And I feel like until I've done that, I haven't done my job. Well, I bet, I bet, my hope you will feel that soon. You'll be having fun. You know, I'm in no rush. That's fair. Well, I've certainly had fun talking with you, Jim, and catching up. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, congratulations on this new chapter i guess whatever uh and now i want to go to portland again so i can hang out and drink your drinks we would love to have you brother awesome well thanks again for your time 
Thanks for having me. Be well. <laughs>